Good morning. So good to see you. Hey, uh, would you join me in a word of prayer before we jump into the text? Father, we thank you for the gift of worship and that you've invited us, you've called us, you've drawn us here together. Uh, Thank you, Lord. And uh, we know that in your word, it tells us that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. So, Father, we come with humble hearts. We come with empty hands to receive from you. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. Thank you that you have made yourself known. And thank you that we can read it. And by the power of your spirit, you help us understand it and what it says, Lord, about who you are and about what you call us to. And Lord, uh, so we thank you for this time. Uh, We give it to you now. We offer it to you. Pray that you would move and speak and do all that you want to do here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Well, go ahead and join me in the book of John, chapter 3. Uh, if you have your own Bible, great. You can find it there. If you need a Bible, there should be one on the, uh, underneath your seat. Or if you have a phone, smartphone app, you can find uh, John, chapter 3, on your device somehow, however you need to get to John chapter 3, that's where we're going to be starting in uh, verse 13 as we just continue our sermon series, walking through the gospel of John little by little. Now, uh, if you were to go on the Google and type in most famous Bible passages, or if you were to go out on the street after church and ask someone, hey, could you tell me uh, what a famous Bible passage is, what comes to mind, likely there would be one that would be mentioned that would be at the top of every list of most famous Bible passages. Can you guess what it is? John 3.16. Of course, of course, John 3.16, there's no more uh, well-known verse in the whole Bible than John 3.16. We, uh, many of us, have memorized it. Uh, it's on, you know, signs at sporting events. Have you seen the guys or gals with John 3.16? Okay, so it's on signs out there. It's uh, probably on billboards. I believe the In-N-Out Burger cups sometimes have it printed there, uh, printed on all kinds of other merchandise, yard signs. People probably have tattoos. Anybody got a John 3.16 tattoo in the house? No, okay, no one in here, but somebody has got a John 3.16 tattoo out there, okay? It's, it's that central. Uh, it's, uh, again, at the top of the list of famous Bible passages for a good reason, right? because it so clearly and in a succinct way captures the heart of the gospel. Here's what the central message of Christianity, message of Jesus is all about, wrapped up in John 3.16. So you're here on a good Sunday because that's what we're going to be looking at, John 3, and we're going to cover verse 16. And let's be honest, if if the preacher man can't preach John 3.16, you need to go find a new church, okay? So let's just, let's jump into it. Uh, This is actually part two, though, uh, of like a little mini-series that we started last week that we called Nick at Night because we were introduced to our good friend Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night, kind of with some questions. They kind of get into a bit of a debate, a dialogue about the true nature of the spiritual 
life. And Jesus says to him, if you were with us last week, if you're familiar with the passage, Jesus says, hey, in order to see the kingdom, in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be what? Born again. You have to be born again. Meaning, true spiritual life, following Jesus, is not about uh, external change alone or accumulating religious knowledge or being socialized into church circles and just learning what churchy people do and then doing that. No, true spiritual life with Jesus is about internal transformation, right? God has to reach down into your heart and change you from within and transform you and give you a new heart. So we're not talking just about behavior modification. We're talking about being given a new heart, a new life. Jesus uses the language of being born again, new birth. Now, we saw that last week as Jesus is explaining this, Nicodemus is a a little slow to understand what he's saying, right? Nicodemus throughout the, the conversation, which really becomes a monologue basically pretty quick with Jesus just teaching because Nicodemus the whole time is just saying, what? Huh? I'm confused. I don't get it. I don't understand. You see that in verse 4. You see that in verse 9 because the teaching of Jesus there is going against the assumptions that Nicodemus has. Nicodemus has assumptions based on his identity as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law, his perhaps understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, He had a certain idea of what the religious life or life with God was supposed to look like, how it ought to work. And what Jesus was teaching was going against the assumptions that Nicodemus held. And actually, the situation appears pretty, pretty bleak, pretty dark, Pretty discouraging if you think about it. Even in verse 10, Jesus kind of scolds Nicodemus. He's like, hey, you are the teacher of Israel, right? Like, you're a teacher. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're a Pharisee. You, you teach other people about what it means to know God, but yet you don't understand this basic concept of new spiritual life that I'm trying to teach you and help you see? Not only that is Nicodemus comes at night, It's a hint to the reality that he's walking in darkness and confusion. He doesn't understand. And Jesus clearly wins the debate. If this were a public debate and we were all there watching and we had scorecards, okay, Nicodemus would get a big zero and we'd all hold up uh, tens for Jesus on how he did in the debate. He would clearly win and point out the bankruptcy of Nicodemus and his views. Look then at how this kind of continues in verse 13. Jesus says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So this is sort of an exclamation point on the end of this conversation. Jesus declares what? That he is the one who came from heaven. He is the one who descended. He is the one, therefore, with authority to teach what is true, to to truly show what it means to know God. He is the one with the power, the authority to declare these things about God's kingdom. And so, again, if we were a public audience watching this debate, verse 13, Jesus saying, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. That would be a moment where he would drop the mic and walk away and we'd all go, woo! 
Get him, Jesus. Tell him, Jesus. We cheer. But if that's where things stopped, think about it, think about it. If that's where things stopped, it would be pretty discouraging, pretty bleak for Nicodemus. Right? He's in darkness and confusion. Jesus wins the debate, makes this final statement of his authority in verse 13, and we'd be left wondering, is there hope for Nicodemus? Now, when we think about it, we see uh, so much of ourselves in Nicodemus, don't we? We see his questioning, we see his conflicted heart, we see his, his doubt, we see how he's opposed to the ways of God or what Jesus is trying to show him. He's hesitant to receive what Jesus has to offer. He's not even sure that he needs what Jesus has to offer. He's perplexed by the words of Jesus. And we see this picture of ourselves, right? That we're like Nicodemus. And so as we ask the question in this debate, in this context, is there hope for Nicodemus? What we're really asking is, is there hope for us? For people like us? The good news is that Jesus doesn't drop the mic and walk out after verse 13. We get verse 14. Look at it with me. There's an unexpected twist here. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. There's one more verse, one more word for Nicodemus here. Jesus references this rather strange incident from the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21, this incident with Moses and snakes, an a snake in the wilderness. You can read about that after church. Basically what happens is people are sinning, they're grumbling against God, they're not trusting Him, and so God sends judgment in the form of snakes. The snakes come, they bite people, uh, people die. It's pretty troubling, actually. But next time, if someone's bothering you, if you're frustrated with someone, just go, you can pray, Dear Lord, send snakes. Amen. And walk away. Just kidding. Don't pray that prayer. But we see judgment. It's actually pretty sobering. Okay, I know. Joking aside, it's pretty sobering to see the consequences of sin in that passage. However, also in that passage, God provides a way of salvation. So there's sin, there's judgment for that sin, and then there's a way of salvation that God provides. He says, hey, Moses, what I want you to do is make a snake out of bronze, put it up on this pole, essentially, and whoever looks to the snake will live. Whoever lifts their eyes and looks upon that snake will be healed and live. And so Jesus is making a connection back to Numbers 21, saying, whoever looks Upon me, the Son of Man will be saved, just as that serpent was lifted up in the wilderness to be looked upon. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Now that word here for lifted up, it's actually, there's a dual meaning going on here. In one sense, lifted up could mean what? could mean exalted. You lift something up, glorified, lifted up, uh, made much of. But also, when the authors of Scripture speak about being lifted up, it would carry with it the idea of death, of judgment, of, of suffering, like being lifted up onto a cross and crucified. 
And so think about that. Jesus wins the debate with Nicodemus. He shows Nicodemus that Nicodemus really doesn't understand the true nature of spiritual things. Jesus points to himself as the true authoritative teacher of Israel come from heaven to declare the kingdom of God. But rather than ending on a mic drop and a word of defeat for Nicodemus and leaving Nicodemus in darkness, Jesus points to his own defeat and his own coming shame, his own death on the way. Isn't that strange? He just won. He could have dropped the mic and walked away. But instead, he points to his own defeat, his own shame coming. And this really is the great irony of the Christian faith, that Jesus, the one sent from heaven, the one with power and authority and and glory, God himself, worthy of all honor and worthy of worship, would go to his death, would die a criminal's death on a cross, suffering and in shame. Why? Verse 15, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, it's here after verse 15 that most scholars think that's where Jesus' words to Nicodemus stop. And then we see John, the author of the gospel, uh, pick up and add a little bit of commentary here. That's what we see in verse 16. Uh, Because what we just saw is maybe striking, maybe confusing, maybe, again, this ironic twist at the end of the debate, Jesus pointing to his own shame, John wants to help us make sense of what we just saw. So verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So Jesus And the author, John, is pointing us to hope for Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not left in darkness without hope because we see the gospel message here laid out before us. And it starts with the simple truth, God loved the world. Let's let that sink in for a moment. God loves the world the world. Brief note on grammar here, actually. Often we'll read this verse, this is a side note, and think that when it's saying God so loved the world, that that so, the word so there, is telling us here is uh, how much God loved the world. How much did God love the world? So much. Like, how, how much do you want a donut right now? So much. How good was that donut? So good. Like, it's answering the question, how much? But just grammatically, that's not actually what's going on In the text, it's more accurately rendered or or being read, uh, in this way God loved the world. So it's not answering the question, how much? It's saying, here's how God loved the world. In this way, God so loved the world that he went and did this. Now, if you were to ask the question, again, well, how much does God love the world? We would still say, 
so much. <laughs> we would still say so much because we look at what he did. We look at his sacrifice. We look at countless other places in the New Testament that show the depth of God's heart and love for the world. So that is still absolutely true. But just again, side note, that's how kind of this verse is laid out. And if you look at actually some different translations, some newer translations are starting to kind of uh, make John 3.16 read that way. Or instead of God so loved the world, it says, in this way, God loved the world. But again, that's, that's a side note. Uh, the points are still the same. The amazing truth, God loves the world. Now this is especially noteworthy because throughout the Gospel of John, when the, the phrase, the world, shows up, it's usually, usually in a pretty negative sense. Like, it's talking about the world that's lost, the world that's caught up in darkness, the world that's turned from God, the world that's in rebellion against God, the world, the, the dark, <laughs> sinful world of humanity that is running in the opposite direction uh, from God. That's usually when the world comes up in the, in the book of John, that's usually how it's operating. And so, it's telling us what God's heart is for that world, what God's posture is towards our lost, broken, sinful world. Now think about it. What, what is your posture? You don't have to say this out loud. What's your posture towards those who wrong you? Think about it. Answer in your head. Your spouse, they're nudging you. They know. What is your posture towards those who, who sin against you, those who hurt you, those who uh, want nothing to do with you, those who shake their fist in your face, those who rebel against you? Often, our posture is less than gracious, less than charitable, less than patient. Often we are angry or dismissive or, or vengeful, right? But here we see God's posture towards such people, towards us. God's heart for the world, not just the Jews, right? Not just the chosen people of God of the Old Testament, but the world, all people. What does the text say? Very simply, God loves the world. God loves people who are running away from Him. God loves you. Think about that. Like, just let, let it sink in. We can, we can move past it quickly. Just, God loves you. God loves you. It's a simple truth. It's a foundational truth understanding scripture, to understanding who God is. Theologian A.W. Tozer has said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Or as my professor in seminary, Dr. Dr. Bouchard, would say, the things that we think and say about God are the most important things that we think and say. So what do we think and say about God? What comes to mind when we think about God? Again, maybe this year that's a difficult question for us to answer because it's been a hard year. It's been a year that's made us weary. It's been a year that's uh, broken down relationships, that's divided us in different ways. It's been exhausting. We've experienced loss and grief, maybe doubt, maybe wondering where God is, mixed up in all of this, maybe wondering about God's heart for us. Is God with us? Is God still for us? Is God in my life? We've been asking maybe those questions. 
But this text simply reminds us, God loves you. God is for you. God is good. He made a way for you to be in relationship with him. Now, see how this unfolds in the text, right? God's love is not just one of words or declarations, but it's one of action, right? Verse 16, God so loved the world that, here's how he loved the world, that he gave his one and only son. Verse 17 repeats again that God sent his son. So God came to us. Because God loves us, he came to us. He didn't leave us in our sin. He didn't leave us to try and figure things out on our own, to figure out some way to save ourselves. God gave his son for us. Let me ask you a question. How do you know when someone truly loves you? It's not just when they say it. I mean, saying it is important and meaningful. And hopefully we do tell you know, our spouses and our kids, that we love them, and one another, that we love them. We can be generous in using that phrase, that we love one another. But we all know that eventually, if someone just says that they love us, but their actions, their behavior don't show it, then those words are hollow, right? right? We know that people love us when their actions, their behavior demonstrate that, reveal that. And so God's love is demonstrated, is shown for us in action by sending Jesus, by Jesus going to the cross, sacrificing himself, laying down his life for us. Again, back to verse 13. The Son of Man must be lifted up, must experience shame and death and judgment. Romans 5 puts it quite clearly, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still nice and pretty and cleaned up and righteous, he died for us. Just kidding. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how God shows his love for us by laying down his life in our place. Verse goes on, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So that there's two kind of...
All right. Sorry about that. If that's for our online audience. So I'm turning this off? OK. All right. Thanks, guys. Here we go. Jesus died as our Passover lamb, right? If we look at the, the story of the Passover in the book of Exodus, the lamb dies. The blood covers the household so that those within the household don't die. They experience life. Jesus perished so that we wouldn't have to. He was condemned, cast out, so that we wouldn't have to be. This was for us. And there's this great uh, handoff, right? There's this great handoff where we are, our, our sin and death and judgment is taken away and we're given instead. What? What does the text tell us we get? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his world, his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save, to save the world through him. The scriptures remind us in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so the outcome is that we, through faith, would trust in Christ and receive eternal life. The Greek word here for life is the word zoe. If you're having a daughter anytime soon, that'd be a great name for a daughter, Zoe. I, I like that a lot. That's just, just my opinion. But the, the phrase more literally says that we would have, again, life eternal, eternal life, life uh, of the age to come is the idea. That there's this coming kingdom, this coming uh, era into eternity, that if we trust in Christ, we would receive that kind of life that starts now, but then continues into eternity. Life that is marked by knowing God, walking with God, resurrection life. And so God sent his son not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And we're saved them from death, from judgment before God. Saved from the wrath of God against sin and evildoers. Saved from condemnation Saved from ourselves, even. We could add that in as well. Now, there's a key detail in the text that we haven't touched on really a lot. Again, I guess the question could be phrased this way. Who is this for? Or who does the work of Jesus benefit? Okay, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever what? Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, who is this for? Whoever believes. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus. We talk about this pretty much every week, don't we? You've been at FBC for any, you know, any length of time. You know that almost every week we come back to this simple gospel message. How are we saved? How do we receive uh, this gift from God? How are we saved? It's by grace, through faith. 
So it doesn't say, hey, this is for whoever works for it or, or whoever, you know, realizes their sin and then follows Jesus' commands really well. It doesn't say whoever demonstrates the right behavior will be saved. Whoever is applauded by the crowd, whoever gets the stamp of approval from the pastor. It doesn't say that. It says what? Whoever believes. Whoever puts their faith in Jesus. And friends, we gotta we gotta grasp this because this is it's pretty foreign to how we often think life works. So much of life is merit-based. Right? We get jobs based on our merits, on our performance. We get raises based on our performance. We often ha- have friendships, again, based on uh, our who we are and what we do and how we show ourselves to be a good friend or whatever it might be. So, so much of life, whether it should or shouldn't be that way, can be merit-based. And yet, what Jesus is telling us about salvation, about life with God, is completely different. It has nothing to do with what we earn or contribute or bring to the table. I was talking with some fellow pastors this week about the idea of external boundary markers. How we all, in, in any, any real group of people or type of uh, people, have boundary markers that tell you who's in and who's out. Boundary markers are external, they're often superficial, but they're they're visible, that people can sense, okay, these are the people that fit into this category, and these are the people that don't. Like, think about it again with uh, bikers. When you think about bikers, I don't know if we have any bikers in the house, no offense intended to any bikers here listening, but if you're a biker, what comes to mind? You think of, like, probably black clothing, you think of leather, uh, you think of, I don't know, maybe long facial hair, again, just... Nikki, you're a biker, but that doesn't fit you. But you get the idea, okay? Um, Bikers or any group of people, there's some sort of external boundary markers that that tell you who's in or who's out. If it's a 49ers fans, right? They got the jersey or the hat or they're talking on their social media about 49ers. Or if you could think about in church world, we have boundary markers in church world. These are often unspoken. But we're kind of like have this, this picture in our mind of, of what it's supposed to look like for someone following Jesus. I'll give you an example. I heard a pastor sharing this week about in their church growing up, one of the boundary markers, it was kind of unspoken, but if you like smoked a cigar, you were out. You were out. And he said, hey, if, if, we, if we had a pastor who faithfully preached the Bible and loved people and, and walked us, through, you know, just expository sermons, teaching the Bible, and we found out that the day before they smoked a cigar, they would be fired. Like, on, like, he wasn't joking. This was, you know, probably a couple decades ago. They'd be fired. And we know that they wouldn't say, like, well, that the true nature of spiritual life is not smoking. Like, no one would say that, okay? But, but we have in our mind these external boundary markers that people can do these things, should do these things, in order to be in the circle. The reason I, I bring this up is not to say that boundary markers are bad. Again, every group has them, and sometimes they're, they're, they're accurate. But, but what Jesus is trying to, to show us is something different entirely. Here's what it means to be in, to be saved, to be a part of the kingdom. The key is not really something that's external or visible, it's actually at times kind of hard to quantify. 
Of course, it gets worked out, but he says the key here is faith. Is, is a, a pointing of the heart towards Jesus and looking unto him, trusting in him for salvation. That's the key. And this connects back to the snake story. Good old snake story. Numbers 21. Again, what happened? Je- there's, there's a reason Jesus pointed us to that story, to tell us what his work was all about. Think about that story. Think of the parallels to, to salvation. People sinned. Judgment was the consequence for it. But God made a way for people to be healed, for people to be saved. And what was that way? Again, lifting up a bronze serpent on a pole so that whoever would look unto that snake would be healed and would live. Now, maybe that sounds strange to us, I bet it sounded kind of strange maybe to the people in Numbers 21. Moses, you want us to do what? That's, that's, what it, that's, how, we, that's how we get out of this? I don't really like that God set it up that way. That's, I mean, come on, really look to the face. That's all we have to do. Clearly there's something else. I'm not going to look to that silly snake. And then they would die, right? Or, again, maybe say, that sounds too narrow. Moses, we've been out here in the wilderness for a while, been, you know, studying snake bites, and I know there's a lot of ways to deal with snake bites, okay? Looking uh, up to a pole, you know, a snake on a pole, that's not one of the ways. That's, that's too narrow. Surely there's, there's many options here about how to deal with this predicament. He says, no, there's one way that's been provided. Look to that snake in faith, and you will live. And so Jesus makes a comparison. I'm going to be lifted up. I am going to die and rise again. And you will be saved if you look to me. If you cast your eyes to me in faith and belief, you'll be healed. You'll be forgiven. You will be saved. You will receive what I've done for you through faith. Now look how the passage ends in verse 19. John's kind of continuing to jam on it for a little bit. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Okay, a few things here in closing. First, notice there's this theme of light and darkness again. We see this uh, throughout the Gospel of John, this, this, this dualism of light and darkness. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness. Now, just think about that line. People loved darkness in light of what we just read in John 3.16. God loved the world, but we loved darkness instead. And then he goes on, this is key, he says, because people did not want their deeds, verse 20 says, to be exposed. Think about that. That, that tells us something about sin, doesn't it? It tells us something about, about the nature in our hearts, this natural desire to keep sin in the dark. Because when we come into the light, when our sin is brought into the light, when our sin is exposed for what it is and we have to confess, often it can be painful. 
Often we feel vulnerable and exposed, seen in a way that we don't want to be seen, reminded of our need to change, our need for help. So we think about why don't people come to Jesus? Think about some of the barriers that are in the way. What does the text tell us? Verse 19, their deeds were evil. And it says there's a fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so think about that. This is telling us that there's a moral component to unbelief. There's a moral component to unbelief. Why don't we believe? Why don't people follow Jesus? Sure, there are uh, intellectual objections. Okay? Intellectual objections are real. People have questions that they want answered. That's often fair. Questions maybe about the uh, historical reliability of the New Testament or about the person of Jesus, or maybe they haven't quite heard the gospel clearly and they really want to hear it explained well. Those are all fair, reasonable questions and realities. But this text is telling us something that, that mixed in with that, often in a way that maybe isn't realized. You know, maybe we don't quite understand that it's going on in our hearts. There's something in our hearts where we don't want our deeds to be exposed. We don't want our sin to be seen and acknowledged for what it is. In other words, we kind of want to do what we want to do. You know, we, 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 we want to do what we want to do. Let me give you an example. I heard someone recently writing about their deconversion. They walked away from the faith, and they were looking back on it in, in, a, in a moment of uh, real frank honesty. They said, at the time, I mentioned intellectual objections, and I sounded quite philosophical. But in the end, I just wanted to get drunk and sleep around. Okay, now, for some of us, let's be honest, we just want to do what we want to do. And we don't want Jesus or anyone else to tell us otherwise. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want the light to shine into our hearts. We don't want the light of the gospel to reveal our need. Now, to be fair, again, I don't, I don't think that people always realize this is happening. So I, I'm not saying that, hey, if you're asking questions and you have intellectual objections, I'm not saying that necessarily you're being, you know, disingenuous. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying the Bible is saying, hey, part of this mixed up in this in our hearts is often we don't want Jesus to be real because it would mean we have to change. It would mean we have to surrender and submit. Let's be honest, that's hard for us. But ultimately, what this last few verses, what they're doing is laying out two paths before us, right? Verse 18 to 21, saying there are some who reject the light, those who remain in the darkness, those who don't want to be exposed to the light, and then those who come into the light. Kind of two options. That's how the text leaves things for us. Will we be people who come to the light who come to receive what Jesus has to offer. We have a chance to respond and do just that now as a church. As the, as the band comes back up and joins us, we'll have one closing song. But first, we're going to take communion together as a church family. We're going to have a moment of prayer, uh, and then we're going to take communion. And what's communion all about? It's about receiving. It's about with open hands receiving the work of Jesus, his broken body for us, his shed blood for us, it's an act uh, that's, that's communicating, demonstrating faith that, Jesus, we are taking hold of what you have given us. So I want to invite you just to, to bow your heads with me as we say uh, a brief prayer. 
I want to leave some space here just for any of you who need to do some business with God. And maybe this, this message, this text has, has stirred up something in your heart, a way that you have not fully trusted in Christ. You haven't fully surrendered to him. There's a sin to confess or repent. I just want to give you space now in the quietness of your heart to confess that before the Lord. Maybe some of us here in this room or, or, or watching online who have never put our faith in Jesus, who've never believed, never turned the eyes of our heart to Jesus who is lifted up. And if that's you, you're here this morning, you're listening in, I'm going to provide you an opportunity to simply respond in faith, to say uh, yes to Jesus, to turn your eyes from your sin and to trust in him for the first time. And now friends, uh, for all of us, we have a chance to take communion and Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of salvation that, that through the work of Jesus, his broken body, his shed blood, Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Jesus, we look to you. We say thank you. We take these elements in remembrance of you and worship of you. Amen. Well, friends, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.